0: Well, good morning again. It's good to see you all. Thanks for gathering here this morning, and thank you for bringing the church uh, into uh, this beautiful space, into this sanctuary. Uh, we're so glad that you're here. Uh, those of you that are gathered with us at, at home, thanks for bringing the church uh, into your living room, around your around your dining room table. Um, and if you're somebody that's new to Crosspoint, uh, again, my name is Jamie. It's my joy and privilege to be one of the pastors, and I uh, hope to get a chance to connect with you afterwards, either just kind of out in the pavilion, but also, as Eric made mention of, our Meet Crosspoint lunch. We'd love to have you. You didn't need to sign up for that you literally just show up it 'll be in the social hall so we 'd love to connect with you in that way so this morning um, I get the joy of uh, helping us continue in our series that we 've called come and see and it 's a journey through the great book of john and there 's this invitation over and over again that we would come and we would we would see and get to know the real jesus and there 's an invitation throughout this to just Marvel at his grace to understand who we are in light of all that Christ has done. And so this week, we're going to be in a very lengthy uh, text. And so here's what we're going to do, a little bit different. Normally, I would read the whole text, and we'd make our way through it. We're going to kind of take it section by section, uh, because last week, we were in the first part of John chapter 6, which is the feeding of the 5,000. There's this miracle, this sign that Jesus does, and then he Later after that, he, like, he walks on water and he calms the storm and, and all of that. And where we pick up the story now is there's this teaching that Jesus is going to do as the crowds continue to follow him. I mean, it's, it's not decreasing at this point. There's more and more people that want to like, get time with Jesus and hear from him and be in his presence. And so we're going to hear what he has to say. So we're going to be in John chapter 6, verses 22 to 71. So that'll take us to the end of the chapter. I would encourage you, if you brought a Bible, you can turn there. I want you to see God's word in front of you. You also can go to cplife.church on your phone, swipe over, you'll see the second card there says message notes, and the text will be there. Anything that I put up on the screen this morning will be there as well. There's space for you to be able to to take notes. And so I'm going to jump into reading the first section in just a moment. But for doing that, one of the things, um, give you a little insight into maybe what a uh, yeah, maybe a couple times a week, like an evening in the heart household looks like. Maybe you can experience this. You're in one of those spots where you're like, I've brought up Netflix on the the TV um, and I don't currently have a show, so I feel lost and alone in the world, right? Um, And so you have that and then you start realizing like, wow, this is no better than the days of Blockbuster video where I just paced the aisles and then just left home empty-handed. And you're like, what's Blockbuster? Sorry, I'm old. But anyway, like, so you'll have those moments. But one of the things that that I find, uh, at least temporarily satisfying, um, is something that I've always enjoyed. Like when you would go to the movies and you get to watch the trailers, the previews, like sometimes I'd actually enjoy that more than the actual film. Well, on our Apple TV, there is a particular, if if you have one of those or you'll look, there's a thing that just says trailers. And you can watch all the trailers for all the upcoming movies, whether in theaters or at home or whatever that looks like. And so it's not uncommon for me to be like, I'm gonna binge watch some trailers right now, all right? This is living the life to its full, all right? And so I'll put that on, I'll check out. I think there's like 90% of them are horror films these days, right? So I'm just scared even watching those. But anyway... The other day, I happened to put one on, and it's not a musician that I follow, certainly I'm aware of who he, he is, but there is a musician who has some acclaim, and he's played to sold-out stadiums and has had a pretty big worldwide following, even if it's not the style that you may necessarily like, but the, the guy goes by the name Moby, all right? Some of you might be familiar with him. And there's a documentary on his particular life, his musical career, all of that. So I, you know, I fire it up, I click play on the, on the Apple TV, and... What begins to happen is there's just scene after scene of him like, you know, early, you kind of see him like in his younger days. um, He's starting to make music, kind of figure out like his style. Then eventually you're seeing like just massive stadiums filled and people just jumping and screaming at his music and just this, this energy, this sort of frenetic pace. And while that is happening... There's this voiceover, there's this narration that is coming from him. And here's how the opening of the trailer goes. He says this. These are the opening words. We think that if we have the right amount of money, the right amount of recognition, we'll find perfect human happiness. But I tried, and it didn't work. Here's this man who seemingly has everything possible, he has achieved all of this greatness by the world standards, and yet the opening to his documentary is like, it didn't work. It's like the book of Ecclesiastes playing out, like it's vanity, it's a mist, it's a vapor, it's just gone, you grasp at it, you think you have it for a moment, and then it's gone. And that, if we're honest, even if we haven't had the same amount of worldly success as a world-famous rock star, the reality is that plays into your heart and my heart. In fact, I want to talk to us for a moment in this text as it's on the heels of feeding the 5,000. It's in this teaching Jesus is going to say, I'm the bread of life. It's a question for us to wrestle through. Like, let's talk about hunger pains for a moment. Like, what do you do with your hunger pains? And I'm not talking simply like, hey, maybe breakfast was a little bit disappointing and you're hoping the sermon doesn't go too long so you can get to lunch afterwards, though that may be a good thing. All right. The reality is there is this ache, there's this longing in the human heart that in a documentary by a world-famous musician named Moby and anyone else who would be honest with themselves would know, I'm looking for some sort of life, meaning, purpose, satisfaction, and even when I get what I think that I want, I don't know that it always satisfies. In fact, if I'm honest with myself, it doesn't. It leaves me wanting And so as we wrestle with this hunger pains, all right, that on the one hand we need to see is actually a good gift from the Lord that he's given it to you so that we would actually be drawn to him. And a question for us, whether you're new to Jesus or somebody that's been walking with Jesus for a long while, is how real is Jesus to you? That's what Jesus is going to help us wrestle through in this text. And so think of this on this quote for a moment. There's a pastor and author by the name of James Boyce, and he wrote this in regards to this text, in regards to what we're about to get into in a moment, in regards to Jesus' statement that I am the bread of life, and about our hunger pains, he says this, "'Is he, that is Jesus, as real to you spiritually as something that you can taste or handle? Is he as much a part of you as that which you eat? And do not think me blasphemous when I say that he must be as real and as useful to you as a hamburger and french fries.'" I say this because although he is obviously far more real and useful than these, the unfortunate thing is that for many people, he is much less. How is he for you? How is the realness of Jesus? Because if we would put him in a spot of like, man, at the end of the day, what actually I'm pursuing here is nothing more than a hamburger and french fries or career success or relationship, like... Jesus isn't as real to you as he is inviting us to understand and experience this morning. So what I wanna do is look at the first few verses. We're gonna look at John chapter six, verses 22 to 34. And what we're gonna see here is a group of people, I would say, that have misunderstood. Maybe a way to think about it is they're they're forgetting the real Jesus, like they've just had encounters with him. Then we're gonna look at feasting on Jesus and what ultimately it looks like to follow Jesus because that's where this text ends, all right? But first, forgetting Jesus, a group of people that, are just missing it, sadly. And I wish I could say it was just them, but the truth of the matter is this is the story of my life, and if we're honest, I think it's the story of all of our lives. So let me read this, John chapter 6, 22-34. It says this, The next day the crowd that had stayed on the other side of the sea saw there had been only one boat, and they also saw that Jesus had not boarded the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone off alone. Some boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. And when the crowd saw that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats. They went to Capernaum looking for Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus answered, Truly I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that lasts for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal of approval on him. What can we do to perform the works of God? They asked. And Jesus replied, This is the work of God, that you believe in the one he has sent. What sign then are you going to do so we may see and believe you? They asked. What are you going to perform? Can we just pause for a moment there? What sign are they going to do? What sign is Jesus going to do? They're asking. It's like, hey, he just fed 5,000 men, which means there's probably 15,000 people plus that he just fed. He just walked on water, all of those things. Like, how in the world could they ask for another sign? It's like, did you completely miss that? Did you completely blank as a short-term memory? Like, what in the world is happening? And I can critique them, and yet the reality is I forget over and over and over again, God provided God cared, God came through, God saw me through this. God has been with me, he has never abandoned me. And yet, this new circumstance comes up, this new challenge, this new thing, and suddenly it's like, what are you gonna do, God? What sign are you gonna perform as if he can't be trusted? And so again, we see the forgetting of Jesus, forgetting who he actually is. They say, our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness just as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said, sir, give us this bread always. So they hear they hear Jesus talking about this. They're like, okay, clearly maybe we're missing out on something, can we have that bread? And so what's been taking place here, maybe another way just to think about this, is they've got a group of people that, obviously they respond initially there's the massive crowds, they're following Jesus, they're coming out, all right, but I would say they are mistaking the menu for the meal. Might be one way to think about it. So you imagine like you roll up into a restaurant, all right? Maybe you're entering back into the, the, those spaces, all right? And so you go there and they hand you the, the menu and it's it's not even, you know, like a digital thing to scan. It's actually it's not a QR code anymore. It's actually a printed thing. And you're you're looking at that particular menu and you're going, and now people start to look over at you because they're hearing some strange noises as you're like literally like taking the, the menu, this piece of paper, you're like, oh, this is amazing. And then you start to crumple it up and you start to taste it, like, oh, this tastes so good. People would be like, what are you doing? That's the menu. It's meant to point you to the meal. Now, obviously, that's a silly example, but what Jesus is getting at is like, hey, the crowds got caught up in the menu. It was pointing to a deeper reality. So sure, great, you had some bread and some fish, and that's amazing, but there's something so much bigger that's happening here. And so Jesus is like, I think you're mistaking the menu for the actual meal. What he's asking them and what he confronts them with is they ask a rather Innocuous question, like, hey, Jesus, like, when did you get here? But because he's God, he's the savior of the world, and he knows their hearts, and he knows your heart, and he knows my heart, and he knows all of these things, he tells them in love, but it is a bit of a rebuke truly, I tell you, you're looking for me. You followed me here, not because you saw the sign, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Jesus is calling them out in this way. He's saying, at the end of the day, do you desire me? you desire Jesus or just his stuff? Are you really looking to be in relationship with me? Are you really looking to submit to me, to have me, to experience me as the sovereign God of the universe, the Lord of everything, or as one pastor? Um, Anything for me to try? Um. All right, there we go. So, seem to be working. All right, there we go. All right. Um, we will, uh, We'll try that, and we'll burn the other one to the ground. Okay, so um, do you desire Jesus or just the stuff it is, is the question. He's getting them to consider, listen, like, At the end of the day, it's possible that we just want a little bit of Jesus blessing sprinkled on our lives. Like, hey, I wanna make my plans, I wanna do what I wanna do, I wanna go this way, I wanna chart my own course, and like, at the end of the day, hey God, will you bless that? As one pastor and author said, like, we want the kingdom without the king. Like, We want all the benefits of Jesus' kingdom, but we wanna be on the throne, we don't wanna be submitted to him, we just want him to bless us and to give us more stuff. And Jesus loves us too much to allow that to actually happen, and so he's calling them out and He's like, you got your bellies filled for a moment. That's why you're here. That's why the big crowd. But there's something far more significant that's actually happening. And so he's calling out. Now, the reality is this desire for more stuff, all right, to just what would be the modern day equivalent of just having our bellies filled, it is so pervasive. I was doing some research this past week because about 11 years ago, we did a series early on in the life of our church uh, through different Portions of the book of John. And so I actually preached part of this chapter years ago. And one of the things that I came across was in around 2010, scholars would say, on average, you and I are sort of bombarded with about 3,000 advertisements per day constant messages that would be coming through saying, you need this, add this, you've got that, you need the latest and greatest version of whatever. Today, conservative estimates are in the 10 to 12,000 advertisements per day that you're bombarded with. Like there's so many things that are taking place saying you need more of what you already have, just a slightly new version. And they're not bad things in and of themselves, but they're promising something that will bring life and f- fulfillment, but they under-deliver. They overpromise and they under-deliver. And it's a massive thing. And this is just What we're up against. It's part of the importance of gathering on a Sunday morning is it's at least an hour where we can come in together communally and be reminded of what the true story is. That your life is not comprised of all the things that you and I accumulate or the things that we would consume. Google alone in 2020, if you're like, oh, was it a bad year for Google? $146 billion in ad revenue. So slightly more than your salary, probably, right? Like... That's the reality, all right? So there is this machine that is behind. That's not, it's all bad necessarily. Don't hear me say that. But let's just know there's this constant, like you and I need more of what we already have in order to be happy. Like that's the message. And Jesus says this, 10,000, like you're getting bombarded with the message every day. Don't work for the food that perishes because it will perish, The things of this world, it is fleeting. It's Moby saying, I got it all, and it didn't actually work. Like, what in the world is happening here? C.S. Lewis, in his masterful way of communicating this, says this in Mere Christianity Most people, if they have really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do not want, that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or first think of some foreign country or first take up some subject that excites us are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. Now, Lewis anticipates that some of us might be, yeah, but you probably had bad experiences, all those, and this is what he says. I'm not now speaking of what would ordinarily be called unsuccessful marriages or holidays or learned careers. I'm actually speaking of the best possible ones. There was something we have grasped at in that first moment of longing which just fades away in the reality. And I think everyone knows what I mean. The wife may be a good wife, and the hotels and scenery may have been excellent, and chemistry may be a very interesting job, but something has evaded us. What are you working for? The food that gives life? Are you feasting on what is offered by Jesus or the food that perishes? And so they ask in response to this, well, what can we do to perform the works of God? Which seems like an okay question, except it again reveals the heart. It reveals part of the problem. The focus is on what? Not on what Jesus has done, but what can we do? What can we do to perform? What can we do to earn? And the message Jesus wants to put before us is, no, 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 you're getting it all wrong. You can't perform enough. You can't achieve this sort of perfected state where it brings happiness to you or earns the affection or love of God. You can't do it. And Jesus is going to speak to this more in just a moment. You cannot do it. So this is why he says, beginning in verse 29, Jesus replied, this is the work of God that you believe in the one he has sent and then they ask him, you know, sir, so what sign are you going to do? All, all of that that we looked at a moment ago. And Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said, sir, give us this bread always. And so when Jesus says there's a bread that's coming down, obviously he's speaking about his life. He's speaking about who he is, that in flesh and blood now, it's the God-man Jesus. And what is on offer is not simply physical food that would sustain life in the bio sense, because John could have used that word, but he uses instead the word zoe. Jesus used the word zoe, which is this meaning to, means to say, so that you might have meaning and purpose and significance and joy, like all of that wrapped up together. Again, it's what, when somebody kicks back and like, oh, we're living the life, they don't mean like my lungs are working and all that, as important as those things are, it's like, oh, there's this kind of enjoyment. Jesus is saying, that is what is on offer here. And they're like, okay, well, give us that bread always. And so let's look for a moment now, as we read this, what it looks like to actually feast on Jesus and on his declaration that I am the bread of life. And so verses 35 to 59, it says this. Now it's a little bit lengthy section, There's far more in here than we have time for, but I do wanna read in its entirety and then we'll highlight a few things. And so picking up the account in verse 35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Jesus told them, no one who comes to me will ever be hungry and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. But as I told you, you've seen me and yet you do not believe. Everyone the Father gives me will come to me and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of those he has given me, but should raise them up on the the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. So Jesus, we'll look at this more in a moment, but it's his promise upon promise upon promise. Like it's this multi-course like meal that he's providing. Therefore, verse 41, the Jews started complaining about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They were saying, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I have come down from heaven To stop right there just for a moment, last week we looked at when Jesus feeding the 5,000 and his control over the waters, this is a way of retelling and saying there's a new exodus because God liberated his people from slavery, bondage in Egypt, led them through the waters of the Red Sea, then out in the wilderness and then provided manna from heaven to sustain them. And so, what is happening here very intentionally is God is communicating through John as this is being penned, all right, is there is a new Exodus. There's somebody new and better than Moses that has shown up. Like, there's this new liberation that's taking place. And if you know the story of Exodus, you know eventually the people have God provide for them. And then what happens? They complain, they grumble, they doubt God's goodness, they doubt that God is going to provide. So, when it uses this word here that they begin to complain, it can also be understood as grumble. It's a direct reference back to God's people and the disposition, even as they're being led toward freedom, led toward the promised land, it's possible to miss all that God is doing. And so they start to complain. Jesus answered them, verse 43, stop complaining among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has listened to and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly I tell you, anyone who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, this is a reference to Exodus, and they died. And this is the bread that comes down from heaven so that anyone may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And so we stop there and just realize what Jesus is speaking about is that this consumption of like, who he is, when it speaks of his flesh being offered. I mean, it's looking ahead. There's no way to miss this. It's about the cross. It's that Jesus is gonna have the flesh ripped off his back. He's gonna have nails pierce his flesh as he's hung on a Roman cross to die in your place and in my place. Like, that's what he's referencing. He's saying, it's that story, it's that that truth that is going to take place. Like, that's what actually brings life. It says, at this, the Jews argued among themselves, and they ask a very logical question, all right, because... Back then, as today, cannibalism is sort of frowned upon. All right, So they say, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? I mean, it can be a little bit confusing, the language. But Jesus seemingly just sort of doubles down. He's like, Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life in yourselves. The one who eats my flesh and drink my, drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day because my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. And this is the bread that came down from heaven. It is not like the manna your ancestors ate and they died. The one who eats this bread will live forever. And he said these things while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. And so, again, Jesus starts out, kind of the book in it, I'm the bread of life, verse 35, all right? And then he says these words. Here's a summary. Truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life in yourself. Now, Jesus is obviously communicating there's this invitation to trust in him and his finished work and what he ultimately is going to do on the cross and how he's gonna conquer Satan's sin and death by rising again. Like that's, that's what ultimately is on offer here and is being talked about, okay? And so this sort of like, is it real flesh and blood? That They'd be missing the point. The call is, will we submit to Jesus? And so I wanna explore for a few moments. There's a ton, I think, different ways we could look at this. And there's a lot going on in here. And even the things I'm going to bring up easily would spill into like hours and hours of more conversation. But just let me highlight a few things. Maybe think about it this way. What this feasting that Jesus is inviting us into, what does that actually provide? And I think there's some really powerful words that Jesus gives here. And the first is back at the end of verse 35. When we feast on Jesus, when we find our identity in him and not in consuming all the perishable things of this world, it actually brings contentment. We think more of what we already have brings contentment. And Jesus says this: no one who comes to me will ever be hungry, and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. Now, I know if I just think practically sometimes, just just think about actual physical hunger. There's times that like I'm, you know, I've crossed over. Like it's not even hangry anymore. It's just full-on angry, right? Um, and it's just, and what could really solve it, very basically, it would be like, get my backside up out of the chair and go to the kitchen, all right, and not just stand there and be like, we got nothing to eat, though that's common for me to do, right, um, to go and to actually, like, take in some healthy, like, nutritious things and actually feed my body. And it'd be amazing to see how my continence and disposition changes very, relatively, very quickly, right? Um, it's why my wife oftentimes is like, you need a snack, right? Like, you need Jesus and a snack. And so I'm gonna get you, right? And so, um, that's just true on a physical level. As so we look at this, and we're like, oh, Jesus doesn't always satisfy. I would put before you, Jesus isn't the problem. The problem is I refuse to take what is on offer. Like, there's, I have his word and I have God's people and I have, can commune with him in prayer and all of, all of these things. And yet it's like me sitting in my chair unwilling to actually get up and engage. And Jesus is saying, when you actually engage with me, like that's when contentment begins to come. It's not just to sit back and say, well, I feel kind of miserable. Well, the reality is like, we're invited to actively trust him and to engage all of that. And then with that, Jesus says, we look at verse 37, there's contentment is spoken of, but also there's words of comfort. He says, everyone the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will never cast out. There is an assurance here. An assurance of your salvation that Jesus will lose none of those that the Father has given. To him. Like, you can't do it. You can't outrun the grace of God. I'm not saying you're always going to have this perfect fellowship with him because there is real sin and real rebellion and all that, but know this that everyone who's been given to Jesus by the Father, Jesus is batting a thousand, right? Like, Jesus does not miss. Jesus never strikes out. Jesus is the one who ultimately gets everybody where they're supposed to be. Like, that's the storyline. And so, if we live sometimes with this, maybe. Maybe you've been brought up in an environment and then you're like, oh, like, I don't know if I have assurance. I don't know if I've done enough. You're operating from that mindset that it's about, like, what good works are you to do? It doesn't matter what you do as far as earning the affection of God. You can't do it. It's why Jesus says over and over again, it's like, it's the ones the Father has given to me. And then I will raise them all up. I will never lose any. That's the assurance. And just as an aside, if you're like wondering, like, ah, oh, I, I don't know, maybe I haven't felt disconnected to God lately. You're doubting some of your assurance. You're longing for more. Let that be proof that you actually do belong to him. Like that desire, you don't have that desire unless God gave you that desire. Those thoughts are not even going to be present for people that do not know the Lord. And so there's this confidence he's wanting to speak to, this security, this comfort. He has got you so there's contentment, there's comfort. And then I think in here, there is a challenge for sure. And this is the one I think we could spend hours and hours on. But I want you to know this, what I'm about to read, was not given so that Christians could argue, all right? Or that we could have a bunch of like angry theologians or first year Bible college students or anything like that. Like what Jesus is communicating here, there's a challenge. But if we get beneath the surface a bit, it rolls back into comfort. It rolls back into just this care and the love of God. And so part of the challenge, look at this in verse 44. It was there in verse 37. It's throughout this, but here's just one reference. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me Draws him. So as Jesus speaks about feasting on him, experiencing salvation, experiencing life, he's saying there's this work of drawing, of wooing, of God as the active agent, of God of doing this work that these folks that have been given to Jesus. So if you're here as a Christian this morning, this is what has taken place. The Father has given you to Jesus, all right? No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Like you've been drawn by God and you're going to be raised up by Jesus on the last day. The active agent in all of this is not you, the pressure is off. That's why this is comfort, even though it is a challenge to us, because we immediately go like, okay, well, what about my free will, and what about my belief, and what about those things? And it's not that you don't have free will, but what Jesus is communicating is this, like, you don't choose God on your own. You don't have that desire, all right? The Scriptures tell us over and over again, we're dead in our sin and our trespasses. I've never known a dead person to make good decisions, to make any decisions. Like, you're just spiritually dead, bankrupt, unless God gives you a new heart. You're like, okay, well, I have faith. Yes, but even Ephesians 2 will tell us, but that faith is a gift from the Lord. And again, this is not given to be contentious, but rather I hope you see the comfort. I, I hope this, we embrace this more not to have theology to beat people over the head with. Like, I don't know how beautiful truths like this get turned into like weapons sometimes for people to argue and be angry about and all that. Like, there's a beauty and a truth here that's being communicated. Because Jesus, in essence, what he is saying here is this. You're not chosen because you believe. You believe because you've been chosen by God. And so rest in that. Sure, does that raise questions? Well, what about the people that don't believe and all that? Jesus, over and over again, he's not saying those questions are insignificant, but he's saying, what about you? Like, forget for a moment, right? Like, Peter learns how, like, the end of his life is going to go, and he's like, what about John? And Jesus is like, I'm just talking to you. So, for a moment, just pay attention to this. If you're here as a follower of Christ, understand, like, this is what God has done. It's not because you believe that somehow you're chosen, but rather, like, You have actually believed because God is the one who has been at work. And so with this, there's some beautiful implications. And I think the more I honestly would put before us, that truth, I think, needs to sink in deeper for the church to be the church it's called to be in this time in this place. Because for one, it gives us an incredible security, which we've already talked about. But at the end of the day, it's not about me and my efforts. In a sermon I read this week, it was probably 25 years ago or so, this, this particular sermon from Tim Keller. Listen to how he talks about security and kind of how, what it leads to. He says this, if I'm chosen because I believe, that means I'm a Christian because I'm a little better, I'm a little wiser, I'm a little humbler. There's something in me that's better. What that means is there's something in me that brought the grace of God into my life that if I lose that, it's like I lose it all. But if it's not I'm chosen because I believe, but rather I believe because I'm chosen, then that means the love of Christ has come into my life unconditionally, unconditionally. Everything in this world is conditional. Like, I need the unconditional love of God. I am desperate for the grace of God. And what this should stir in us is an affection for God. Thank you for rescuing me. Thank you that, listen, because at the end of the day, my best deeds, my best efforts are nothing but filthy rags, the scripture says. Like, I cannot offer this up to God and say, you should accept me. It's the finished work of Jesus. It's his blood shed on the cross. It's his broken body. It's his holiness and purity and all of that being given to us in this great exchange. And so what this leads to, and if you're somebody that's been around church and theology, you'll know like this gets talked about as election or predestination. or Sometimes it gets talked about as Calvinism and all all that. And you might have all sorts of associations with that. What I want to put before you though, rightly understood should lead to so much humility. And don't you think our world is in need, and our like in more and more humility? Because it says, I can't do it. I'm not a follower of Christ because I'm awesome and I got it figured out and I can look down my nose anybody. No, what it tells me is I was dead, I was the worst, I was unwise, I was a fool, and God chose to work through me. Like there's no room for arrogance. And so sort of this like, oh, I believe this, and it puffs you up, you've completely missed it it should draw us to worship, it should draw us to this humble disposition. It's why Paul would write to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he'd say this, brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Not many were wise from a human perspective, not many powerful, not many of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong, and God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing to bring to nothing, what is viewed as something, so that no one may boast in his presence. What's he driving at? You've got no business being anything but humble. Because it's God's work through and through. And then the beautiful thing that happens, I contend, and this is why I think this is actually a needed truth in our time, is when we have a disposition of just understanding how radical God's grace is, how we've been rescued, how we've been saved, that it's not up to us, it's not because we're intellectually superior and figured this out, when you and I operate from a place of humility, it's then that community can actually get birthed. And we long for relationships, don't we? I mean, that's what's been such a struggle so much over the, the past you know, 12, 15 months, however long, long it's been, is isolation and all, all of this. We are created, in the image of God, we are created to be in community. But what will kill community is pride and ego. And for us to understand, I've been saved by the grace of God. To have that challenge us will become then a sweetness and a comfort because community will begin to flow when we realize, hey, we're just a community of people that were broken and beat down and weak and vulnerable. We are beggars that have simply found bread in Jesus and we're inviting other people. The prophet Isaiah would write about this, about what Jesus eventually would secure for us. Isaiah 55, just Notice, like, imagine if this was the type of community. Like, if we were known for this. Not people that have it all figured out, but people that just know where their meal, where their provision comes from. Come, everyone who is thirsty, come to the water. And you, without silver, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without silver and without cost. Why do you spend silver on what is not food and your wages on what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to to me and eat what is good, and you will enjoy the choicest of foods. The prophet Isaiah is talking about a community of people that have come together who are too poor to buy milk or wine or food or anything. And when you're in that place and you recognize that that's your spiritual condition, it begins to foster. There's this humility, there's this community, there's this security, because at the end of the day, it's not about you and it's not about me, but it's about God. And so we'll end with this than this invitation, because these are, all of this, they're hard words. And so when we look at verses 60 to 71, look at the response. Imagine this. Jesus has gone out, and the crowds are following him, and we're thousands upon thousands of people. And at the end of this, those that are gonna be standing around, apparently, according to this passage, it went from thousands to 12. It's the worst church growth strategy ever. And yet... Jesus is saying, I don't need the crowds. I don't need the thousands. I don't need the people showing up thinking that, ooh, like, what what new thing and getting after the food that perishes? He's looking for people. Regardless of the size, he's looking for a group of people that are so dialed into their need that they wouldn't go anywhere else but be with Jesus. So let's look at this, verses 60 to 71. 71. Therefore, when many of his disciples heard this, and when it says disciples, it's not just referring to the 12, this is literally the crowd. They said, This teaching is hard. Who can accept it? And Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were complaining about this, asked them, Does this offend you? Then what if you were to observe the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? He kind of like, This offends you. Wait till you, you know, like, have you really understood where I came from? Anyway, the Spirit is the one who gives life. The flesh doesn't help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. But there are some among you who don't believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who did not believe and the one who would betray him. He said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. Verse 66, from that moment, many of his disciples turned back and no longer accompanied him. So Jesus said to the twelve, you don't want to go away too, do you? And Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus replied to them, didn't I choose you, the 12? Yet one of you is a devil. He was referring to Judas, Simon Iscariot's son, one of the 12, because he was going to betray him. Jesus asked this question. You don't want to go away too, do you? And let that be a question as we close here, not just to the 12, but to us. Where are you going for life? The food that perishes or the food that brings Zoe, that brings true life to Jesus as the bread of life? And then hear Peter's words. And Peter's not a perfect man. He gets it right here, right? He gets it right some of the times. But he also denies Jesus. He also has Jesus say at one point, like, get behind me, Satan, as he's talking to, to Peter. It's kind of a bad day if Jesus says that to you, right? Like, that, all of that. This is Peter's story, but here, He answered, Lord, to whom will we go? You have the words of eternal Zoe, eternal life. You're the one that provides that. And so church, as we prepare our hearts for communion, so glad we get an opportunity to do this, and we do it every week. But again, it's just what a good reminder that it's the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus that brings life. And so will you feast on the broken bread of life? Will you know that Jesus' body was broken, that you and I could find the wholeness, the completion, to have true life, to have true satisfaction, that we don't have to give our time and energy and effort to trying to perform because we won't be able to perform. And then that'll lead to pretending, and that's exhausting. And it doesn't satisfy. But Jesus says, I know you. I know all your brokenness. I know all your mess-ups. I know all your shame. I know everything. I want to be in relationship with you. So I'm going to pray for us. And if you're a follower of Christ, we invite you when you're ready to come up and grab the elements on either side of the stage. If you're a follower of Christ and you're gathered with us, joining online, you can get elements together. It's a meal for those that understand they're in need of the grace of God. And so come up and get it. And after the worship team leads us on this next song, I'll come back up and we will partake together. And we will remember the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. And we will allow this, this gift that God has given us, a means of his so let me pray for us. Father in heaven, thank you for your word that challenges us but also brings great comfort. Thank you that in your mercy, and your grace, that you would work in such a way that you would choose us, and that you would give us life, that you would give us faith, that you would extend your grace to us. We are undeserving. And Jesus, we thank you that you willingly out of obedience to the Father, you lived a sinless life that we should have lived. You died a death that we deserve. And you were punished in our place. And we are so thankful that you did away with our sin and death problem by rising again three days later. And so God, as we worship you now through song and through this meal that you've given to us, may we be reminded afresh of your grace. May you get your glory And may we experience as your people just a deep and abiding joy that we might come to know this Zoe life. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.